this is Christopher Lee. Uh, first, let me welcome all of you to the clinical updates of COVID-19 that we have uh, from NIH every Thursday afternoon. Uh, so thank you for spending lunch with us. Uh, lunch will be virtual. I'm sure you sort yourself out. Um, first, let me know. Let you know that uh, uh, CPD points will be granted for this uh, event. So we just have to follow uh, the the procedures that uh, the secretary has laid out for you. Now, just a quick uh, update about how Q and A is done. We will encourage uh, question and answer. Uh, and uh, we hope that you will type your questions in the Slido app and the uh, popular upvoted uh, questions will appear at the top of the list and we will try to address as many questions as time permits. Um, how to use Slido? Well, we will probably describe that to you again during the Q&A session. Okay, uh, now today the focus is talking about how we will manage our front line as we proceed into this pandemic and I'm sure it has changed the way we work in many areas. Uh, clearly some of us listening in today are working on the front line in the COVID uh, hospitals. Whether they are fully COVID or whether they are hybrid COVID, uh, we are functioning there and there are guidelines and policies that have tried to make sure these hospitals remain safe. But equally important as we go forward uh, is the work that needs to be done in the non-COVID hospitals. Hospitals that will still have to look after our general medical cases, general surgical cases, and people who have to come to the hospital to deliver. And that is something that uh, we must be cognizant about. So to address uh, both these areas, uh, we are fortunate enough to have uh, three important people who are currently very involved in the front line uh, dealing with this uh, virus. Uh, First off, uh, we have uh, Dr. Anusha. Uh, I think many of us know her as the one of the head of the infectious disease unit at Hospital Tunku Ampuan Rahima in Klang. Uh, and she will be talking about how we should look after the non-COVID patients during this COVID pandemic. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, well, life still carries on and the other medical cases and surgical cases still need to be seen. So Anusha will be uh, helping us uh, maneuver through that process. Uh, second up is uh, Associate Professor Dr. Sashila. Uh, she is the consultant ID physician at UMMC, uh, and she is currently the head of infection control at UM. Uh, she will be talking about how we set up the workflow and processes in COVID, whether it's fully COVID or whether it's the hybrid COVID hospitals. And she'll be going through some of the guidelines, and I'm sure she will also tell us how they have tweaked it along to make sure the work process is smooth. Last but not least, uh, Dr. Paran, many of us know him as one of the uh, big time family physician. There she is. There he is. I haven't seen Paran for a long time. He looks younger. Uh, he is currently the family medicine specialist at Clinic Kasiatan Greentown. Uh, uh, in case you don't know, that's in Ipoh. Um, and uh, Greentown Clinic is currently a center for sentinel sampling for ILI patients and they have a drive-through swabbing center for POI and contacts of COVID patients. Uh, Paran will join us during the Q&A sessions and I'm sure uh, that there will be many questions regarding uh, our encounters in primary care as well. So the good news is that's the longest you have to bear with my voice. Uh, I'm going now to pass over uh, to 
two lecturers and uh, later to a Q&A where Dr. Karan will join us. So first off, uh, let me uh, ask Dr. Anusha from HTAR uh, to take the floor now. Alright, so um, my class today was to talk about how to safeguard healthcare uh, workers in, uh, working in non-COVID hospitals. So I thought I would start with some statistics. These statistics have been presented by our Director General of Health. So as of the 14th of April, if you see, we have had 130 cases of SARI and ILI. So this just uh, goes on to show us how important it is in a non-COVID hospital to screen this population of patients to ensure not just healthcare workers but even other patients are safe uh, and they don't get infected while coming into hospital for other uh, other medical conditions. So I thought I'll just put up a slide on the definition. This is quite a standard definition and uh, this is obtained from the WHO website. You can see that if I align, there must be some fever of 38 degrees Celsius and uh, some cough with an onset of about 10 days. For sorry, case definition is very similar except these patients require hospitalization. Okay, so most of the ILIs will be seen in the health clinics and saris in the hospitals, but you can get a crossover on both sides. So when you start um, uh, in planning for a non-COVID hospital, it's very important to start right from the entry point. I think triaging is very important. And if you want to triage successfully, there has to be a standardized questionnaire. And um, this questionnaire was from the Ministry of Health. It's a very simple questionnaire that can be uh, administered by the uh, health staff itself in the triage area. And it addresses history of travel, if there are any um, respiratory symptoms, any contact with a positive COVID case. So now based on this triage form, and at all entry points, they can the triage can make a decision whether the patient moves on along two pathways, that's either the respiratory pathway or the non-respiratory pathway. I also want to highlight on the picture here, if you see this is uh, my hospital in H-Town, uh, in Klang, and for triaging, the primary triaging, we have this glass casing. It makes it a bit easier because if the triager remains within this glass casing, it doesn't need to don a lot of PPE. It just needs a triplex surgical mask at the most. But if it comes out and tries to assist the patient to you know, exit the car, you know, then this PPE can change depending on the condition of the patient. Also, now with the COVID um, around, I think many emergency departments have uh, not free flow. That means patients and relatives just don't walk in and out. So we have also resorted to limiting the number of people who can come into our buildings and also those uh, people who come in at triage and then the pathway for you to leave is also different. So there's, there's very little mingling going on here. Alright, so as I say again, I'm presenting um, the triaging but I'm using the flow for my hospital. Every hospital is different. So as we go along, you have to just uh, tailor it to your individual needs. So in my hospital, if you have a patient who comes in with a PUI COVID and the patient is clinically stable, then he will be sent to us a screening center, which is away from the main emergency department. I'll show you a picture later. However, if the patient is um, uh, stable but uh, requires admission, then he goes into the isolation facilities. Otherwise, if he's triad and he doesn't fulfill the definition of PUI COVID and he has some respiratory symptoms, fulfilling SARI, and he's relatively stable, then he goes to zone X. So what is zone X? Zone X is basically a respiratory zone. So prior to COVID, we never had this respiratory zone. We had red, yellow, and green, like many other centers. 
But once COVID set in, we realized very early that sari patients could potentially be COVID patients as well, or later on they could turn out to be COVID. So at a very early part, uh, we actually managed to uh, boot a two-way pathway like, in uh, ED, where there is a respiratory zone and a non-respiratory zone. So if the patient doesn't have any of these respiratory symptoms, then they go on to be triaged usually to the non-respiratory pathway. So if you look at the uh, ECDC documents, right, they, they actually emphasize a lot at, on this triaging and also the initial encounter of the patient in emergency department. One of the key highlights is signages. They say it has to be clear so that the patient doesn't go wandering around and uh, this will limit their movement in your emergency department. Also posters. Posters regarding coronavirus is very important and it has to spell out hand hygiene, you know, cough etiquette, uh, social distancing and the works. It is very important to have these clear pictures, clear signages around and also provide them with adequate waste disposal bins. You don't want them you know, holding tissue and, and, and sitting around the clinic and dropping them on the table or chairs next to them. And um, the other essential thing that has been um, uh, emphasized in ECDC document is uh, alcohol-based sanitizers around the uh, hospital, more so in emergency department and uh, also entry points at clinics. And if, if there's no alcohol sanitizers, then the other option is uh, water and soap. Um, the other thing is we deal with a lot of patients who come from various backgrounds. So sometimes when the healthcare worker is, you know, in PPE, they get a bit uh, uncomfortable. They don't realize or they don't know why the PPE has to be worn. They feel a bit upset. So giving them information leaflets for SARI or PUI COVID, depending on your setup, would actually alleviate this anxiety and probably buy some cooperation from them as well. So as I was sharing earlier, respiratory zone, in um, it, it is further classified into three zones. The acute, that's the red, the yellow and the green zones. So if you look at the picture on the right, the, the far left um, is where the, res the uh, resuscitation, intubation and all goes on. Whereas uh, the space outside is the yellow and the further end is the green. So why is it important to zone? I think because you have to designate your staff in the various zones. And this will also go um, to, to you know, address the PPE usage at various zones because the, the type of procedures or the type of encounters that uh, the healthcare worker would uh, be facing at these different zones vary. So depending on whether there's aerosol generation, there's no aerosol generation, the PPE would uh, change. I will elaborate more on that later. So if you also look at this, um, uh, respiratory zone, right? Previously, when we worked, we could have a team of five people, six people with us. But now with COVID, we realized the larger the number of people working in a particular area, the more the exposure to your healthcare workers. So this has also brought about a reassignment of work and looking through our work process, redefining it, trying to limit the number of uh, healthcare workers moving in a particular area, simply because we want to minimize uh, infections and we also want to minimize PPE uh, usage and want to make the work process more efficient. If you look at infection prevention and control in these areas, usually a lot of people focus on mobbing the floor. At least what I realize and what I've seen, they give a lot of particular emphasis on mopping the floor once the patient is moved out. 
But I I really think that this has to be relooked. I think what is more important is wipe down of high touch areas like bed railings, door knobs, um, you know, your computers and your tabletops. These are more uh, relevant to do when you move patients uh, between zones or out of the uh, emergency department or even the wards. And as I mentioned earlier, I would uh, elaborate on PPE a little later. So in the zones where there's aerosol generating procedures, we would actually use full PPE. I will describe that later. In areas where there's no aerosol generating uh, procedures, we would use minimal PPE. Okay, so this is the non-respiratory zone. So basically after the patient has gone through triage, the patient has been screened uh, and, and everyone is happy. He can go, uh, if he's coming for chest pain or trauma or something like that, they can go to the non-respiratory zones. So even in the non-respiratory zones, okay, every document from WHO to CDC, if you look at them, they keep on emphasizing on social distancing, even between patients and healthcare workers and also between healthcare workers themselves. Okay, so in these zones, they don't need to don a lot of um, PPE, they just need a three-ply surgical mask or and they have to apply standard precaution at all times. So just because you're wearing a three-ply mask, it doesn't render us protection. What is more important is besides the three-ply mask, hand hygiene, frequent hand hygiene and adequately done at the right time is very important too. So um, that, that's a point to emphasize and again, the high touch area should be wiped down frequently. All right. The next area that um, is often, uh, I would say, neglected to a certain extent is movement of patients within the facility. Now, this could be from the emergency department right up to the wards or from the ward to the radiology department for um, some kind of procedure or uh, imaging or any other uh, uh, movement within the hospital. I think this document by ECDC again has uh, illustrated that limiting the healthcare uh, facility movement is important. It should be done only for essential procedures. And if your patient is a sorry patient that has some respiratory illness, the patient should be offered a surgical mask to wear too. And the best route, the shortest route, uh, the route with uh, least uh, people moving around should be uh, used. And preferably, if you're working in a very busy hospital, you can get your security officers to help you to cordon off that pathway so there's very little interaction between these patients and others who come in for other routine checkups. So these routes should be planned way ahead of time. Okay? It should be a consensus by the hospital management as well. And people on the ground should be aware of um, the pathways involved because it's it usually always happens at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, when you have a case needing to go from uh, maybe a maternity unit to the OT and then people are fumbling. That shouldn't happen. So it should be very clearly drawn up right up from the beginning. All right. Now we come to the wards. All right. So once the patient is admitted, so prior to COVID, we used to have medical male, medical female wards. And I think this setup is is very common in most of the hospitals here. But after COVID, we realized we needed respiratory wards, wards where we could house sorry patients and we could keep them safe and also keep our healthcare workers and other patients safe. So, um, of course, the number and the wards here will differ. This is based on my hospital experience, but um, I will just share with you what we have done. So we have, um, we have got three big uh, wards. And um, if you see the 8C60, they are basically wards with individual rooms. 
There are four negative pressure rooms there as well. And they can isolate patients who are critically ill. Okay, as I've shown you, um, we don't, we have an open ICU. So we, we find it very difficult to move our critically ill, sorry patients into ICU. So our ICU has actually moved up to our isolation facility or our uh, single rooms in this uh, floor. So initially we started with one floor on the eighth floor and then subsequently we had to use the sixth floor as well. So most of these rooms are uh, single individual rooms with empty rooms and suite baths. Some of them have negative pressure. There, was, there are also some four-bedded uh, rooms there as well. All the critically ill ones who are ventilators, high-flow masks, requiring oxygen more than 10 liters or intubated are housed here. So there's, there's this question again as to why we put all those with, uh, who are intubated and who have got high ventilator settings here. Because um, if you really read the ICU documents, they, they tend to show that aerosolization occurs after 10 liters of oxygen, uh, beyond 10 liters of oxygen. So to reduce that, uh, risk of transmission, we try not to place them in an open ward. Hence, we put them in single rooms. And also these patients more or less at some point of time will require some kind of uh, renal replacement therapy as well and that can be done in these wards. And then we come to our uh, two other wards, A, B and 1B. They are open wards. Um, they, are, they house the most stable patients and um, we have categorized them into the uh, less stable and more stable ward according to our needs. Um, we also have a ward in the maternity unit, which is run mainly by the maternity people, that's, I mean, the obstetricians itself. So they basically take in all the ILI cases and SARI cases who come in who are either have, uh, pregnant or just delivered. And they house them in uh, their single room in their ward. So, um, in this way, we have divided our hospital into the respiratory and non-respiratory. Now, again, this is based on my hospital experience. You will have to tailor, make it to your needs. But if you go on to see, um, in my open wards, we have actually zoned the areas into red and green zone. So, this again is um, based on our, how we work on the ground. So, the red zones are the patient area. So, they are essentially areas where you would have to wear PPE. Whereas the green zone is your clean working area, the relatively clean, uh, uh, clean area. So you only need your triple surgical mask. So because they are open wards, um, we don't, uh, we try not to put incubated patients in here. So even if you go back to look at the occupational safety and health uh, paper that uh, or guidelines that are out, they encourage patients in the uh, open wards to actually use a triple surgical mask because these are respiratory patients. Now, while the mask doesn't 100% protect you from uh, getting uh, respiratory illness, it actually uh, acts as reduce uh, the infectious respiratory secretions that uh, come out from the source, either from the nose or the mouth. And in these wards, we also are very particular about hand hygiene. Okay, there's regular audits going on as well on that. And um, the other other thing to note is um, we, have, we are so used to bringing the, the case notes to the patients to review. But now we have re-looked our work process whereby we, re we look into the notes, we have discussed the cases and then we go to the patient. So the, the notes should not move uh, to the patient's bedside, right? And the other thing is um, aerosol generating procedures. We tend to... Um, 
uh, not uh, do many of those in this world. So nebulizer is a very grey zone at the moment. We tend to use modified MDIs instead. Now we also identify um, patients who turn ill or, or fall. Uh, they come in relatively stable, but along the course of illness, they become more unstable or ill. So we identify them early and transfer them to the more critical care area. All right. So now um, the other thing about uh, working in these uh, wards now, we realized that um, we had to relook our uh, healthcare worker. Uh, the numbers of health, the number of healthcare workers going in. So what we, we tended to do was uh, staggered or shift work. Again, and these are recommend, recommendations made also by the Occupational Safety and Health. This is a document or guideline that is out for COVID, and we found that useful for our, our SARI wards as well. By staggering them into shift working hours, one is you minimize exposure. So even if you have one or two healthcare workers down, you still have a group of them who are still functioning well. And this also reduces fatigue because they get their X amount of time off. Okay? And it helps to build teamwork to a certain extent because you work together so eventually you find you bond with each other and you know you're only as strong as your weakest team. So you would look out for each other and protect each other while you're working in that environment. The other key area for um, for these SARI wards is education and training. It's very, very important. So now our healthcare workers, many of them are juniors or they have been uh, no, redeployed from other departments. So many may not be familiar with the work processes of the ward or the subject material in the ward. So education and training, it's not just a one point, you know, train and you go in, it has to be continuous. And when you are talking about education and training for PPE, it has to be done um, in a very structured manner by very experienced people training and you have to log in a particular number of practice sessions and, and the person assessing you has to be comfortable with your level of confidence and your ability to actually don and doff the PPE before you are allowed into these areas. So all this takes time and, and as you as you have one batch in, the next batch has to be trained to prepare them to go in as well. And then communication. I think it's very important to communicate on the latest updates, on the latest changes, latest guidelines. Uh, you don't have to do them face to face, you can use virtual means. And uh, I think communicating is important. The other thing about communication, I think Prof. Shashila will explain later, is the mental health issue of our healthcare workers. I think right now many are working under stressful conditions and fearful conditions whether they are safe or not safe. So elevating that, you know, lending a year. And I think in, in my hospital, the psychiatry unit has already come out to, to show their support and they have given questionnaires and they really are involved in, uh, you know, helping to counsel and whatnot. So uh, I, I would urge that to be done everywhere else too. Alright, so earlier I was talking about PPE, right? Alright, personal protective equipment. So this is how we categorize in a very simple manner the personal protective equipment for our boards. So anytime, the first picture, um, if you look, uh, the lady who is wearing a, a cap, a face shield, a three-ply mask, a surgical gown, gloves and a disposable uh, plastic apron. 
So basically, she's working in the open wards. The wards where I said patients are not requiring high-flow masks or intubated. So there's no aerosol-generating procedures done there. So she would be uh, done in, in such a manner. But once you go into the uh, more critical care area where patients have uh, intubated and whatnot, so then they would have to use an N95 mask and uh, the boot cover is actually optional at this point. Huh? So um, this, this is the difference in the PPE for aerosol generating and non-aerosol generating procedures. So not just the wards, this is also extrapolated for the respiratory zones in emergency department. Alright, so um, as I mentioned earlier in my triage slide, I said the stable patients would be sent to our screening centre for COVID. Now, um, I am not sure how it is in many centres, but in our centre, the screening for COVID is done away from the emergency department. So we have a block that uh, is relatively um, a short distance from the emergency department. It houses uh, the few, uh, what you call, rooms of uh, staff who work in the screening centre. So we have two or three rooms that we use for swabbing patients and also for examination and whatnot. And then we have Bilik uh, Garakan, um, where there's a lot of uh, discussions and whatnot happening there. So the most important thing for screening centre is clear signages. Clear signages, dedicated healthcare workers, working in shifts where there's proper monitoring done and um, that should then, I mean, and the PPE uh, usage and all that should also be monitored in this area. Alright, why do we want to, to, to keep this training centre away from the main uh, emergency department? Because my hospital, if you take for example, it, it's very busy. So if patients come for screening and hang around there, then there will be a lot of mixing and mingling of patients. Hence, we have decided to actually push the screening centre away. Okay, temperature screening and RE screening. Alright, temperature screening alone is not very beneficial. However, when it's done with screening uh, of respiratory symptoms at all entry points, it actually keeps uh, the healthcare facility safer. And these are the justifications from the CDC website as well. Alright, social distancing. Why is it so important? So I would like to share with you this graph. Okay, Social distancing, you see uh, when no measures were taken, look at the way the number of cases went up, these red dots. Alright, but subsequently when social, dis uh, when, when social distancing was done after the first few 500 cases, look at how we managed to reduce the subsequent infectivity rate. So it's very important why we need to do social distancing and and this is not just for patients and for the population or the public. We have to do it even among healthcare workers. The commonest area that is overlooked is the pantry and the prayer room or the surround. So this is a guideline or rather a leaflet that came out from my hospital uh, educating our healthcare workers that they cannot share all this equipment and they have to practice social distancing, no more sitting together and eating. It's a very lonely time, yes, but it has to be done. Okay, now, how contaminated, I, I would like to share this uh, slide uh, from Emory uh, University. It's very interesting, it, it's a study done in China, okay, in Wuhan. Basically, they swapped 626 uh, hospital surfaces and they found 13.6% uh, of the samples were positive. And look at the hot zones, uh, ICU, alright, 32%, obstetric isolation ward, 28%, and the isolation ward per se, about 20%. And look at the surfaces which were very contaminated. 
All these are high touch areas, door handles, telephone, desktops, printers, it's the same in our hospitals too. So hence why I, I was um, saying that we have to wipe down high touch areas more frequently compared to the floor. Okay, and uh, this is a document for infection control and prevention standard document from WHO. Again, uh, they talk about frequent um, wipe down of high touch surfaces, bed railings, uh, door knobs, surfaces, telephones, and they ask to use uh, hospital level disinfections. So, to, uh, just to give you a brief uh, um, overview, the, there are two different types of dilutions that you can use for those which, uh, where the surfaces are recently soiled and uh, where the surfaces are also um, maybe, you know, you have to look at the recommendation of the product insert itself, whether it can be used on certain material or not. But this is basically the dilutions that can be used. So the, the commonest uh, things that we are asked is extreme machines, portable extreme machines when they are pushed out. Do we, how do we disinfect them? So in a sari hospital, you just need to wipe them down if they are not visibly soiled. If they are visibly soiled, then you can follow this first directive here. Alright. So moving forward is my last slide, okay, post-COVID or even in the COVID era, how are we going to move forward? So um, there's this document out in um, CDC talking about teletriaging, okay, using teletriage for patients prior to their arrival to your hospital. And this, using this teletriaging, you can better plan the arrival of the patient. The staff can be ready, you can triage them to the right area, there's no um, mixing and mingling of uh, these patients. And the other thing to look into is virtual clinics. I think in Suegulo it has been done for um, patients with retroviral disease, they have an easy clinic. And should we now be extrapolating this for our other clinics such as endocrine, rheumatology, for those stable, well-controlled patients. Um, the other thing to shorten hospital stay. OPEC, Operation uh, Parental Antibiotic Therapy, perhaps, you know, the, con the contact time in hospital is very minimal. And also to consider something like an IV to oral switch, which can also uh, uh, shorten the hospital stay for these patients. All right, with that, thank you. Right, uh, thank you, Anusha. Um, I think we'll leave questions uh, to the end, because I think some common questions will come up for actually all three panelists. So, uh, because time is short, quickly we'll run over to Associate Professor Sashila. Um, Sashila, are you ready? I see you there. Hi. Right, okay, you have the floor, Sashila. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Dato, and uh, a very good afternoon to everyone. And uh, I would be presenting uh, prevention of transmission of COVID in a hybrid hospital. And basically, uh, just sharing on on the steps that we took to, to try and reduce the transmission of infections in this hospital. So as most of you all would know, University Malaya Medical Center is a 1,600 uh, tertiary teaching hospital with more than 40 specialties and subspecialties. We have 36 operating theaters and more than 8,000 healthcare workers. And we serve a population of 1.12 million patients annually. Uh, and as you can see from this graph, we are actually in one of the hotspots of COVID and, and therefore um, we, we uh, would see quite a number of patients either coming in as COVID or, or masking as something else. So to prepare a hospital for, for COVID, uh, 
we are uh, a COVID uh, a hospital for COVID infections, patients who come in with COVID infections. We need to know what are the sources of COVID, or possible sources of COVID in a hospital. So mainly the sources would be from patients, uh, contaminated surfaces, and fellow healthcare workers, especially if we live already live in a hotspot. So. Um, so I'm sharing some of the strategies that we use to reduce transmission of infection in, in a so-called hybrid hospital as ours, which was uh, which is treating uh, patients that come in for other diseases as well as for COVID. So the first thing we did was establish a task force uh, and we had a chairperson, a coordinator and had representation of uh, main, uh, of almost all departments, uh, main departments and, and uh, key areas. Uh, this included um, from the ID, respiratory, PEDS, uh, emergency department, primary care, anesthesia, operation theater, nursing, medical microbiology, infection control, uh, social and preventive medicine to take care of healthcare worker safety, uh, counseling and support, facility, environment, training, communication. We had a swap team that, you know, so that. Um, uh, to, to make the use of PPE much easier. Uh, we had a team to look into entry points and look at the non-COVID um, cases, our PPE stock and looking into human resources and procurement. And uh, we met uh, and to discuss the national situation, the situation in UMMC, uh, the amount of bids we had, and also the report from each team to, see the up, to talk, discuss about the updates and, and challenges. So the next step was to separate our hospital to, uh, to uh, specific areas to determine which ones uh, go to, to, to take care of COVID and non-COVID patients. So this is our setup before the COVID era, I would say. We have six blocks. As, as you can see, Manara Utama had medical and surgical cases. Manara Selatan had our labs, rehab, uh, bioimaging. Uh, after the COVID, once COVID came in, we had to reorganize all these buildings. And you can see Manara Utama was mainly uh, uh, used to take care of COVID patients and COVID-related conditions such as pneumonia, our SARIs and PUIs. And Manara Selatan maintained and we added on the non-COVID uh, cases went to Manara Selatan. Um, sorry. And uh, then we had Manara Timo and the complex Wanita and Kanak Kanak, the Ruka building uh, and the Trauma building uh, had separate areas to take care of COVID and non-COVID cases. This to minimize the mingling of, of both patients, uh, both patients and, and teams. The next thing we did is decrease the number of patients and visitors to the hospital. So we reduced the number of outpatients by postponing their appointments. Uh, before postponing, each department went through the patient's EMR and lab results before deciding whether they were fit uh, and, and fit and also, also uh, the duration of postponement, what it should be. Uh, and once it was decided, the patients were informed of the postponement and, and advice on how to come and collect the medicine and who to contact for further information. Uh, the surgeries, elective surgeries were cancelled and limited to emergency and semi-emergency surgeries. And the semi-emergency surgeries were vetted by a team to decide whether they were necessary. Inpatients were reduced by reducing the number of beds and also consolidating the different subspecialties into one ward and into one building. We then deployed doctors from various other departments. Uh, to need areas such as ED, swabbing area, primary care, medical departments, and so on and so forth. Then we came up with specific guidelines. All this is based on the KKM guideline and uh, 
international guidelines and as Anusha has already mentioned, guidelines, we use the guidelines and then tailor these guidelines specifically for individual hospitals and areas. So we had guidelines and SOPs for all procedures and for all areas for COVID as well as non-COVID management. And this included guidelines for specialist clinic, our ambulatory care, daycare, hemodialysis, hematology, physio, radiology, our lab services such as endoscope, intervention cardiology, operation theater, and also what we would we do with uh, pay, uh, people coming from the Faculty of Medicine, uh, faculty, sorry, faculty of Medicine from University Malaya itself, uh, unit from UMSC, as well as the dental faculty. And all this information and guidelines were put on our portal, and it was accessible for all healthcare workers, and it was live because it kept changing. As you know, in the last couple of months, I've never changed the guidelines so often as we do now because new evidence come up very frequently. So the next step was early identification of patients so that they can be segregated and treated to prevent transmission in the healthcare setting. For this, uh, you know, you've seen the KKM guidelines. We adapted it again uh, for our center. So we had a standardized one to be put in in all entry areas. And you can see these entry areas included our, our clinics, psychiatric clinic, our cardiology lab, oncology, every um, department had a screening uh, and triaging before patients were seen. And uh, if they were identified, they were given a dedicated waiting area with a separation of two meters between patients and the areas. There were cleaner signages, as Anusha has mentioned, signages are very important. And there were marks on the floor to make sure that there was distancing between patients and healthcare worker, patients and patients. Healthcare workers were advised to use masks and if there was a uh, who were triaging should wear a mask and there should be adequate distance. If that could not be maintained, then they were advised to wear a shield, uh, a shield, uh, frequent hand hygiene and disinfection of all surfaces were the main things. It, once the patients were identified, they were put in these dedicated waiting areas and then sent to ED or uh, specific areas in the clinics were identified to, to see these patients. I'm not going to go through this, but I also wanted to just tell you, uh, it's just like uh, in, in Klang Hospital, uh, in our primary and in our primary care clinics and ED, which were the main gatekeepers, uh, the triage area div were divided into to see public who had PUIs or PUS or ILIs or SARIs were sent into to one floor. The non-COVID patients were given another area and healthcare workers who were symptomatic or PUI related were seen in a special staff health clinic, which we established to make sure our patient, our healthcare workers were seen um, uh, rapidly. Again, EG, uh, ED had triage, and I think Anusha has already told you uh, how they did it, and most hospitals will have the same pathway, and you just need to tailor it based on your infrastructure. The next thing is to have a dedicated COVID and non-COVID teams. You should have clear plans of action in each department and identify people to be in charge of it. Uh, so, uh, so for the non-COVID related wards and department, we had a COVID champion, which was uh, uh, consists of a doctor and a nurse. And this person was the liaison person responsible for ensuring everyone in their departments are trained, educated, and for dissemination of information from the task force. Uh, and then there was a COVID team for management. Uh, so a COVID team, which actually managed COVID cases, like certain surgical teams preferred to have a COVID team that did their surgery or only saw COVID patients uh, who did PCIs for swabbing patients in the wards and so on and so forth. In the COVID-related wards, we had 
uh, divided into confirmed COVID cases, PUIs, SARIs, and respiratory wards uh, before they were uh, uh, to, to take care of patients that possibly could be COVID. Um, yeah, sorry, I have to interrupt a little bit. We are having some technical issues. Uh, can you all hear us? Can you hear us? Okay. Uh, can you hear Sashila? No. You can't hear Sashila, is it? Parang, you can't hear Sashila. No, no. no. Towards the end, it got, it got broken off. Uh, okay. Sashila, you... From where? Uh, is there a specific place I should start from? Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. now okay. I can. Yes. Go back for a few slides, maybe. Yes, and then... The last slide, yeah. The last this slide. slide? Oh. Control? Is it infection control slide? Yeah, yeah, the last one. Okay, okay. okay. So should I start from there again? Thanks, sorry about okay. that. No worries. Okay, so uh, I will, I, uh, sorry about that. Uh, so we'll continue with, with step number seven, which is infection control. And in my opinion, as an ID physician, as an infection preventionist, I, I believe, like everyone else, that this is one of the most important thing in keeping our hospitals safe. So according to current evidence, COVID-19 virus is primarily transmitted between people through respiratory droplets and the contact groups. So droplet transmission means, um, okay, droplet transmission occurs when a person is in close contact within one meter with someone who has respiratory symptoms, uh, such as coughing or sneezing, and is therefore at risk of having his or her mucosa, uh, his or her mucosa, which is mouth or nose, or conjunctiva uh, contaminated with potential infective respiratory droplets. This transmission can also occur to formites in the immediate vicinity of the infected person. The transmission of COVID virus can occur either to direct or indirect contact with a, with a person, person who's, who's infected. And the indirect contact would be through, um, to equipment or surfaces uh, uh, around the patient. This would include stethoscope, thermometer, bed rails, doorknobs, and so on and so forth. Uh, airborne transmission is possible in specific circumstances in a setting in which a patient would need uh, aerosol-generating procedures such as uh, ventilation, nebulization, uh, turning the patient from a prone, and prone position, and also a patient on a, on a ventilator, whether it's invasive or non-invasive ventilator, and, and there many other, uh, any other um, procedures that can generate, generate aerosols. So uh, it is very important. Uh, these are, I think, the main important things. You should mask everyone. So all healthcare workers must wear medical or surgical masks while in a clinical area or interacting with one another. And all patients with respiratory symptoms must wear a mask, preferably all patients. Because as you know now, there is COVID virus can be transmitted in a pre-symptomatic phase uh, period. And during that time, the patient may have very, very mild symptoms or the healthcare worker could have very, very mild symptoms. And therefore, it's, 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 it'd be safer at this point before we get new evidence that we wear a mask when, when we are in this very high uh, risk settings. The other important thing is always to wash your hands, especially the five moments, wearing the right PPE at the right time, uh, and making sure you wipe down the equipment and social distancing. I'm not going to go through this as, as uh, Anusha has already mentioned. The PPE should be based on your diagnosis and type of procedure or exposure that 
and healthcare worker is facing, and there should be a clear signage on what PPE should be used. Um, and it's always important to maintain a one meter distance from a patient except during examination, wear surgical mask, frequent hand hygiene, and gain disinfection. I keep repeating this because even uh, in normal situations, we should be doing this. The other thing I want to highlight is, it is very important that we use our PPE rationally because unnecessary use is a wastage at a time when we need our PPE most for our sickest patients, and, um, and that is very important. The other thing that, you know, uh, that is important is having a clear demarcation of the clean and contaminated areas in a particular area, whether it's ED or triage or in the ward, because we don't want to have a situation where doctors wearing uh, PPE meeting doctors without their PPE in an area because they're unsure what PPE they're going to wear. So it's very important, again, to have a signage on the demarcation between clean and contaminated areas and where the doctor should wear which PPE so that everyone is on the same page. The other important thing to consider is the environment. So environment is a very important source for healthcare associated COVID-19. The infectious droplet carried by sneezing or coughing can contaminate surfaces and it can persist, persist on surfaces for hours to days depending on the type of surface, temperature and humidity. And, uh, and these contaminated surfaces may have contributed to many outbreaks, one of them being on the princess, uh, Diamond Princess. So there was a study that showed and also a review showing that uh, coronavirus, uh, this includes all coronavirus, could stay on aluminium for two to eight hours, plastic for five days, paper for five to four to five days, um, uh, wood for four days, stainless steel for two to three days, carport for 24 hours, and so on and so forth. So as Anusha had mentioned, cleaning of high-touch areas, surfaces, and equipment is very important because these organisms can stay on the environment for, for, for a long time. And if someone touches it and then you touch your mucosa, your face, or your eyes, there's potential of transmission. So this is a patient high-touch area. So the patient's cardiac table, chairs, phone, and all the switch buttons. In the nursing counter, the telephone, the computer, uh, the workstation is very important. The door handle, call bell, uh, again, computer, and therefore wiping down this height and also our equipment, our stethoscope, the x-ray plate, um, BP sets, thermometers should be wiped down. You probably don't share between patients, but if you're sharing, it must be wiped down whether they're COVID or non-COVID. And uh, making sure all high-touch areas are frequently cleaned down and especially between patient use. The other question is what disinfectant should be used? So, I've, so the coronavirus is an enveloped virus. It's easy to kill with most uh, disinfectants. But whatever disinfectant you choose, you should make sure, uh, look at your label to see whether it, it, it does kill an enveloped virus and corona, and use it according to manufacturer's instruction, meaning the concentration should be right, and also the contact time. The contact time for any disinfectant to work is very important. So the most common one that we use is sodium hypochlorite, that is your bleach, and it should be used at 1,000 parts per minute. And depending on the concentration of bleach that you use, you should dilute it accordingly. Again, uh, the, you can look at the manufacturer's guide. Isopropanol, ethanol alcohol, uh, quaternary ammonium complex, phenolic ammonium chloride. I've given you two references here. This is from um, US and one from Canada, giving you the list of uh, disinfectants that, that may be used and you can have a look at it. But household bleach is good enough 
as long as you clean down. The other thing is prevention of COVID-19 from healthcare worker to healthcare worker. And we commonly forget this. You know, we take our PPE measures very strictly when we see patients, but we forget about our fellow healthcare workers. And this, I feel, is the, one of the most challenging uh, thing that we face. Especially since we've we are in a hotspot area, our healthcare workers are not, don't only put on the head of a healthcare worker, but they also put on the head of a patient, put, put on the head of a patient or a public. So KKM has come up with, with guidelines and we have also come up with a, a guideline to be followed in our hospital uh, based on, on, on what we see and feel is important. So the first thing is having a daily roll call. So all, uh, all staff uh, should, uh, should have a roll call is, is, is sent out by the head of departments or dedicated person in that department to make sure no one in that department is sick. And one of the things I learned, uh, other than this roll call, it's very important to ask them um, in the last two weeks, how have you been? Are you on Panadol or Energesics? And have you seen a GP for any reason? This is just because as healthcare workers, sometimes we just brush off the mild uh, signs and symptoms and we continue working. Uh, we take pop in a Panadol or an Energesic and just, oh, it's fine, we can continue working. But uh, based on our experience and, and what we have been seeing, these things cannot be brushed off easily. So symptoms of any severity must be informed to the head of department or team leader and they must inform our OSH so that a risk assessment can be done and a decision will be made. The other thing we emphasize on is social distancing at all time in the hospital and outside of the hospital because many of our staff um, also share uh, rooms or they live in um, uh, rented um, houses um, uh, and, and therefore, even though they may not be uh, social distancing in the, they may be social distancing in the hospital, but maybe at home, they, they may not be. Uh, do not attend any gatherings uh, at this point uh, and uh, frequent hand hygiene and cleaning of equipment and examination surfaces. So all healthcare workers in our hospital must wear uh, surgical masks or, or medical, medical masks when in, they are in a clinical area or when they're interacting with one another. Limit the number of doctors doing rounds. Um, so this is a photo of what you shouldn't be doing. Uh, social distancing of more than two meters at all times in the pantry, meeting rooms. Uh, meetings should be avoided and limited. Food stalls, you're walking together, lifts and clinical areas. Avoid physical contact. So don't take any offense if you don't shake your hands. Hand hygiene, five moments still matters. And also before touching your face now. Disinfect your shared workspace and equipment before use. So this is one of a potential source of infection. Uh, you know, we have a lot of healthcare workers who share the same computer and workstation, especially in the counter, uh, uh, counter staff. So make sure after each shift, you wipe down your computer before you go back in your workspace. And also, again, as Anusha has mentioned, uh, uh, in the surahs, make sure there's no sharing of uh, personal belongings like the tulukong and, and things like that and also distancing in the surau and limiting the number of uh, the time you spend in the surau as well. So to ensure that uh, that um, these measures are, are complied to just like our hand hygiene audit now we have a COVID kind of audit uh, so this is daily monitoring and feedback by compliance using a checklist and we have uh, infection prevention squad 
to go around making sure that the compliance is done. So this is done by the infection control nurses, the patient safety department, and we have volunteers from different departments who are very enthusiastically joined us as well. And it's been great uh, with, with support from the heads and all staff in the hospital. The next thing is surveillance of healthcare workers and patients in this hospital. Uh, so we have a surveillance log of all healthcare workers who are taking care of COVID patients. So as long as you go into a COVID patient room, you go under surveillance by the Jabatan Kesihatan Awam. And uh, we have, if we, uh, the, uh, there's also a team by, by the OSH, JK and uh, patient contact tracing team will look at risk assessment and management of healthcare workers returning from travel, asymptomatic healthcare workers with household contact, and non-hospital acquired contact who are being investigated for PUI or COVID, healthcare workers exposed to patients with confirmed COVID, and patients in and out patients exposed to patients or healthcare worker with a confirmed case. We have on our portal where the healthcare worker can do a self-risk assessment, and this is fed back to which, which, uh, which the OSH team can assess and then follow up and um, uh, immediate advice is given to the healthcare worker on what they need to do until Austin gets uh, gets full of them. So as of now, uh, this is courtesy of the Austin JK department. We have uh, had about 1,000 over um, healthcare worker under surveillance. We have run risk assessment for 1,491 patients and appropriate action have been taken. We've also sent up a special staff health clinic. We already have a staff health clinic to look at other cases, but a special staff health clinic has been set up uh, as recommended by WHO for, for countries which are between clusters and, and community transmission, we are somewhere in between, where screening and test all symptomatic healthcare workers regardless of whether they are a contact of a confirmed case. So we have a, a special clinic for this. So as Anusha mentioned, we have a psychosocial support group for healthcare workers. Uh, this is done by our team from the psychiatry and psychology department, and this has been um, very useful for our healthcare workers' support. Um, and, and I think this is one of the most important things. Education training and reminders. So we have a team just making sure this is ongoing. So for all healthcare workers must undergo uh, knowledge on training on knowledge of, of COVID, either to face-to-face, -face, Zoom, email, video uh, presentations, WhatsApp messages, Schoology. And all clinical staff must undergo PPE training uh, either they are COVID or non-COVID. So we have a logbook to make sure all of them have undergone training uh, and also to uh, the swap team to know how to do, an, they should know how to do an asopharyngeal swap. Of course, uh, the other group of people that we must not forget, because everyone in the hospital is important in this matter, is the cleaning staff and other contract workers. So all of them have to undergo roll call training, education and monitoring, similarly like any other healthcare worker in this hospital. The other important thing, as we all know, is the usage of, P of, of the PPE that we have. So we have a team that looks at the quality of the PPE and the amount of PPE that we have to ensure that, uh, that we are on top of things and uh, so that we can mitigate if any problem arises. We also monitor the amount of uh, PPE that's used in the staff in the hospital and the wards. So, to prevent an infection, we need to break the chain of transmission. So knowing that it's a droplet and contact uh, 
disease. Uh, the most important thing, these are some of the things that you put in. Symptomatic patients should wear masks and seek early medical advice. So these symptomatic patients and healthcare workers, hand hygiene, hand hygiene, hand hygiene. Uh, avoid crowded areas, hand hygiene again. And uh, surface cleaning is very important. And putting in using your standard and transmission-based uh, precaution using the appropriate PPE for appropriate procedures, AGP, you know what you need to do. If the routine care, use what you need to do. So I think as an as a ID physician and infection preventionist, we have to start to, we have to relook at our, what we mean by standard precaution in a hospital until more data is available. You know, there's a lot of things, uh, there's still a lot is unknown about extent to which pre-symptomatic or what is called asymptomatic individuals spread the virus to daily routine. So I put asymptomatic in brackets because uh, there, may, there are reports of people who are asymptomatic and transmitting this disease, but I believe most of them are actually pre-symptomatic because when we go back and talk to our so-called asymptomatic people, many of them have had some sort of vague disease which they did not consider as a symptom. So these are things that we really need to look into uh, and the pre-symptomatic phase or prodromal phase or whatever you may call it, it is about two days before the actual symptoms and usually for someone to transmit a disease, what we know, they have to be some, some sort of symptoms. So standard precaution and droplet precaution for all patients and as you know, standard precaution is again hand hygiene, hand hygiene, hand hygiene and disinfectant of high touch sorry, not tough, high-touch surfaces and equipment after each contact. And the other thing we need to consider is when face-to-face -face with a fellow healthcare worker or patient, especially those who have respiratory symptoms, we should uh, make sure we put on a face mask and the patient has a face mask, avoid congregation, overcrowding, and have a screening question for all patients by attending doctor, whether they are in a COVID ward, whether they're in an ambulatory care setting or whether they're in a daycare setting, make sure this questionnaire is put on so that immediate action can be taken until we have more information or the about immunity and so on and so forth. Moving forwards in PPOM, we have to start resuming non-COVID services in a stepwise manner. So emergency cases, oncology, chemotherapy, we are increasing the uh, semi-emergency cases, intervention radiology. We have to have short, medium and long-term plan to make sure we are safe, we can keep our hospital safe as we see both COVID and non-COVID patients. The use of teleconsultation and, uh, yeah, and, and is, is, is picking up and as Anusha has said, this is something we are also looking into and internationally everyone is looking into it. So uh, that was my last slide and I would like to acknowledge the UMMC COVID task force uh, led by Prof Adiba and Prof Nazira and the UMMC management, Prof Tengku Kamaru and his team for all their support and ensuring that this hospital is safe. So my last words are let's fight this together, look out for each other and be safe. Yeah, and, and that ends my presentation, Dato. All right, Sashila, thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks for the clip as well. Okay, uh, what, but perhaps before we even go to the questions, uh, we have a bit of time. I was wondering whether Dr. Paran would like to say a few words with regards to um, the primary care setting, uh, which has, uh, especially when we lift the MCO, they'll be as crowded as ever. So how do we try to make some sense of it? Uh, Paran, you, maybe you have a couple of minutes. Would you like to say? Yeah. Thank you, Dato. Uh, I didn't prepare anything, but um, just share what we are doing here. Uh, initially, when the outbreak was happening, uh, there was a lot of chaos. Um, 
know, we have to suddenly stop all the appointments and reschedule these patients, and we had to cut down drastically clinic uh, attendances and so on. So it was a bit chaotic then. But now I think the attendances has uh, reduced very much. Uh, I think almost about one third of our regular uh, attendances now. People are just scared to come to clinic now. You know, even our regular patients, uh, we just ask them to collect the medicine. Some of them are not even coming. So that's the other issue that's coming on now. Um, uh, of course, our clinic is also doing the sentinel swabbing and the drive-through swabbing for suspected PUIs and also the ILI cases. I think that, that is going on uh, quite a bit more smoother now uh, from the initial phase. Because at the initial part, we are not sure what are the appropriate PPEs and the amount of PPEs and all, but now it's a bit more clearer uh, how should we uh, go about it. My, my main concern is uh, all these, uh, those with NCDs, the NCD patients, uh, what's going to happen to them? Uh, many of them actually did, did not come. Uh, some did not even collect the medicines. We already had some patients already coming in with uncontrolled uh, blood pressures because they did not get their medical supplies. And diabetic patients with uncontrolled sugars as well, they're already starting to come in. So I, I think that will be a cause of uh, concern in our near future. Um, besides that, also for the healthcare personnel. Um, so that we've had a few of our colleagues uh, who were contacts and they were quarantined and so on. So, but I think now with the workload uh, much reduced because a lot of patients are not actually uh, turning up. So I think uh, in, in some ways it's okay. Uh, we are trying to cut down the number of uh, staff, uh, you know, where we're doing shift uh, and so on. And, giving some of their afternoon offs and, and certain ways to cut down the number of personnel in the clinics as well. So that, that's what we are doing now. Uh, I think uh, on the other hand, we would like a little bit more definitely for clearer guides on the PPEs for certain situations, uh, especially in the outpatients like triaging areas. I, I think the information given earlier by uh, Sashila and Anusha are very helpful actually on the triaging areas. Uh, the ILI uh, uh, areas or those dealing with respiratory infections, what are the appropriate PPEs that we need to use? I think that's very helpful for our staff. Yep. Um, right, thank you, uh, Parang. Uh, I think you highlighted uh, an area that uh, we won't have time to discuss today, which is the collateral damage uh, from COVID for the thousands and thousands, if not millions of, of uh, of, uh, NCD patients that we are looking after and I think we will see the effect of that uh, in the months ahead. I, I think that's going to come. Um, but we'll leave it for another forum to discuss this. Thanks, Farah. Thanks. Uh, so let's go to some of the questions. Uh, I'll read off the questions from Slido. Alright. This is, uh, I'll start with a tough question. Huh? Why start easy questions and no fun? Right? Okay. Uh, I'll see who is the braver among the three of you. Uh, this person says, uh, they are worried for sorry patients. That's true. Many government hospitals couldn't afford strict DPEs for all sorry wards. What would be your suggestion, uh, your suggested practical measures for equipment restricted, or you, I think it means PPE restricted hospitals? Are there such hospitals around? Okay, I'm, I'm just being sarcastic. <laughs> sorry. Okay, uh, uh, let, let, let's. I'll bully Adusha first. Is it okay? I'll bully yeah, Adusha yeah, first. Adusha, go ahead. 
my hospital deals with this typically. All right, so we are a, a sari hospital, and there's a lot of anxiety among staff when it comes to PPE. Everyone wants maximum PPE to see the sari patients. Now I want to remind everyone: these are sari patients. They are not PUI. They are not confirmed COVID. So there's a very clear distinction between these two groups. So when we talk about sari, okay, out um. I'll just give you numbers offhand. Uh, for HTAR, out of 500 over patients we screened for SARI, only 30 turned out positive. So the number is small. I'm not doubting that they are there, but it's small. So I think the most important thing is to risk stratify every patient. Now, um, as how I presented, we triage them in such a manner to see their risk, whether they have aerosol generating uh, procedure risk or not. That is, do they, uh, do they aerosolize? Uh, their secretions. So that is important. If you know they're aerosolizing, then you use uh, things like N95, face shield, etc. Otherwise, if your patient is not tending to aerosolize, I think it's okay to stick to the basic PPE, a triply, surgical mask, a face shield, a long sleeve gown, and gloves when you are uh, managing the patient. Um, always remember, uh, yes, that SARI patients can turn COVID, but not every SARI patient is COVID too. So patients, um, what you call uh, presentation, uh, the risk factors, the type of case you are seeing. Is this patient presenting to you with uh, acute respiratory illness, with fever? Does this patient have a viral picture on his uh, uh, bloods? Does the x-ray look very suggestive for COVID? All this will help you make your decision. And uh, I think it has to be very, uh, what you call evidence-based, like your PPE usage. Yeah. Right. Thanks. Uh, maybe from uh, the other two, Sashila and Paran, do you want to add anything to that question, which is a very important and fair question? Uh, no, Sashila no. or Paran? Yeah. No, no. no. On, on my side, no. Nothing for them. Sashila and Paran, Yeah, so I agree with Anusha. I, I, the fear is real, but I also think we should look at the signs. So currently, it is a droplet infection, and uh, we have to to think that you know any respiratory infections we have to take respiratory precaution the, the problem is i think sometimes we have not been following the standards before and now everything looks very uh, sinister to us so in in these sort of cases i think for now we know if it's if it's if it's pneumonia or respiratory infection use a ppe as you should not everyone needs an n95 mask even in a patient who has confirmed covid in routine practice, if they're not aerosolizing, all you need is a face mask and shield. You do not need to wear N95 masks for every single patient. And and I think um, I, I think even looking at our healthcare worker infection rates, other infection rates, if you look back, I think uh, I think more data will come out on this and the kind of exposure leading to infections. And um, I think the most important thing to prevent an infection in a healthcare setting, if you look at the Singapore experience and the Hong Kong experience, if you had good hand hygiene practices and at least wore a mask and maintain your distancing, they managed to prevent or reduce the rate of infection. So I think we need to go back to the science, follow the guidelines. I think WHO's guideline and KKM guidelines are very sensible. And I think if we follow that, uh, we are pretty safe. And also people think if you wear all the PPE, you will be safe. But you also need to remember when you wear all these things and you doff it wrongly, there's a chance of you contaminating yourself. So it's better to be wearing the right thing and using it properly rather than using too much and, and then ending up contaminating yourself. 
That's right. my answer, uh, Doctor. Right. Thank you, Sashina. Thank you. So, uh, a quick recap: we would be looking at one uh, risk stratification of patients. Uh, in our current situation where I think community spread, which is certainly there, but it doesn't seem to be exploding, thank God, for that so far. Uh, I, I think we know that we are, we are, we'll probably still pick up sorry patients who are COVID positive, but the numbers have fortunately have not been dramatically uh, uh, high so far. But having said that, the other important thing is uh, to look at the patient encounter we are expecting. So look for AGPs. If you are considering AGP, by all means, wear the appropriate PPEs. But otherwise, I would agree, uh, three-ply surgical mask. Uh, and if you want to, which I think is good personally, uh, would be a face shield, which we can occasionally recycle, which is fine uh, and is cheap. Uh, please don't wear transparency over your face. Uh, at least put something on top, right? Uh, and of course, uh, if you think there's AGP, then you need to, to push it up. I'm going to ask a question that uh, I know will be, could be controversial, uh, but that's why we're here, aren't we? Uh, many of our private colleagues are testing every single hospital admission. Uh, every single patient coming in, regardless of whatever, all right, uh, is tested. And, and there's some literature about it in the ops and gynae setting, uh, in the surgical setting, for example. But what are your thoughts about that? Uh, Obviously, uh, the answer will depend on the access to testing. When the day comes that we can test everyone in 10 minutes all over the place, it could be different. But uh, what are your thoughts about that? So perhaps um, I'll start with Sashila first. Thank you, Dato. You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, well, I, I believe uh, testing everyone blindly just gives you a false sense of well-being. Uh, I think we should still go towards, uh, you know, the syndrome, when you're thinking of um, um, infection prevention measures, you go towards what the patient presents with respiratory symptoms, what you need to wear, because just because if you, if you swap someone who's no symptoms, this is coming for something else, you're just swabbing them so that they can enter the hospital. And uh, if they're negative now, what makes you think that tomorrow or day after they're going to be not negative because as you know there's an incubation period of 14 days and uh, so so I, I think just swabbing for the sake of swabbing uh, just gives someone a false sense of uh, um, uh, well-being I, I think uh, so it all goes back to good old medicine when we take a good history and see whether the patient has got risk for, for COVID and then take the appropriate measures rather than swabbing and then taking a history when that comes up positive. I think this is going back to our good old HIV days when everyone said, oh, you know, we're not going to touch a HIV patient under da da da, they're swabbed and make sure they're there. So I think, again, we need to go back to good history taking, uh, standard precaution or, or universal precaution, whatever you may call it, and then taking based on uh, what the symptoms are, taking the transmission based precaution. Uh, uh, um, precaution and then testing the patient if they fulfill the criteria for, for COVID or PUI, whatever it may be. That's my, my take on it. Okay, thanks, Shashila. Anusha, quickly, your comments on that? Yeah, so I agree with Shashila by and large. I, I also want to say that um, if you if you get a patient who comes in and you depend on the SWOT to guide your treatment, then I think it's very wrong. I think I agree, history taking, examination, 
and then stratifying the patient. So it's again re-stratifying the patient and that should guide your management. Even if you do swab a person, I think if the person needs urgent treatment or surgery or some procedure, it should not hamper that. It, you know, you should not depend on the swab to decide whether I'm going to do the surgery or whether I'm going to, uh, you know, carry on with a procedure. So it all depends. You have to re-stratify the patient. And yes, agree with Shashila again, if you swap today, the person is negative, it's just a false sense of security because it can always keep, uh, turn positive along the, uh, down the road. Right. Uh, thank you. Uh, we didn't plan this, huh, two of you. All right. Did we? No. Uh, but I want to thank... Uh, uh, Oh, okay. Uh, now, jokes aside, uh, this is serious, obviously. I mean, currently, I think, uh, I think in principle, all of us will say that the more you test, we've been grumbling that we're not testing enough. The more you test, the better our data is. That one, from the public health perspective and control of the outbreak, is, is true, obviously. Uh, and you, if but the reality, reality is this, we cannot test everyone now, full stop. And I think testing people who are asymptomatic for non-respiratory reasons at all uh, would take away the time and energy of our labs from looking at patients who need, it, who need their results faster. Having said that, going forward, when, the, when good antigen tests, rapid antigen tests comes along, when we find someone that's good, perhaps that might change a little bit. But I think regardless, the points brought up by the two ladies is absolutely true. Just because someone is swapped negative today, and if you are doing an EGP, I would recommend you, you wear whatever is required of an EGP procedure, regardless of the result. We know as of now, at, PC, at the PCR level, even in uh, America, uh, we are talking about false negatives of up to 30%. That is significant, and I, I hope people will think about it. Uh, so I hope people don't take away the energy and time and the focus away from patients who need it more. That's all. Right, okay. There, there were a few questions on that point, so I, we won't discuss this issue again. All right, next question. Uh, this is directed to Sashila, so you have no choice. We advise uh -huh. bleach alcohol peroxides for surface disinfectants. Is regular household soap adequate for layman public of prevention of COVID-19? Sashila? Um. Yeah, so I think if, if you're not taking care of a COVID patient in your house for whatever reason, then uh, soap and water is fine. So, uh, I mean, if you specifically want to kill COVID or SARS-CoV-2, then you need to use the right disinfectant. But otherwise, if you're just cleaning your house, then soap and water is sufficient. And anyway, even in a hospital setting, we use disinfectants uh, such as bleach is the main, most important thing. We use spots as well. But... If the um, area is soiled with respiratory secretion or any other secretions, uh, you know, if there's visible soiling, we first clean it down with soap and water. Because if you put a disinfectant on an organic material, the disinfectant uh, is denatured and it's not effective. So uh, we always clean down any visible soil with, with soap and water because this automatically reduces the burden of the organism. And then we disinfect after that. But that's in a hospital setting uh, because we come across high burden of uh, organisms, not only uh, coronavirus, but we also have bacteria and, and other, other viruses lurking around. So we need to wash with disinfectants. Uh, in a household setting, soap and water would be sufficient. 
unless you're taking care of a COVID or a PUI. Hope that answers the question. Right. Oh, thank you, Toshira. Yeah. Uh, okay, I don't want to move along. Uh, okay, uh, we talked about uh, striging as patients come in, and uh, I think both Anusha and Sashida talked about fever monitoring. Certain, the question is, certain groups of patients, like older patients, may not always mount a fever response. What is our strategy so that we won't miss our eye when screening this group? Uh, maybe I would ask uh, Paran to answer this question because I think he does a lot of screening. Paran? Okay. Thank you, Dato. Um, so, we are, our clinic is doing an ILI screening uh, for those patients who actually fulfill the criteria for ILI. So, if they have any cough or sore throat or running nose and fever, then we do screen them. See? Um, but fever is not actually one of the main features, I believe. So, we are, we are looking more at those with respiratory symptoms. So anyone with any of these features, uh, we, we just send them for swabbing anyway, see. So uh, we have actually a low threshold for screening uh, patients for ILA. As long as, uh, you know, we, we don't exceed our quota, we, we, we are given about five to 10 swabs per day for our clinic alone. So as long as we can, uh, you know, uh, get this patient swapped, uh, we just go ahead and see. Um, the other thing is, uh, if we don't specifically look for older patients or so, um, uh, not particularly, but uh, as long as they have any respiratory symptoms, we do screen them. But having said that, so uh, out of a few hundred uh, ILIs uh, screening that we did, I think, if I'm not mistaken, only one turned up positive. So it's a very low, uh, I mean, a positive rate there as well, see. And the only older patient that uh, was, uh, to my record, I think was positive was a PUI. It was a contact of another COVID patient, actually. He didn't actually come in with uh, ILI symptoms. So uh, at this moment, I, I'm, not, uh, uh, I'm not seeing this kind of patients yeah, that are positive for them. Right. Uh, thank you, Farman. I mean, clearly, uh, I think fever uh, is certainly not one of the major symptoms, even though many patients have fever. But looking at the data from Ministry of Health Hospitals, and I'm sure UMMC has the same experience, Quite a number of them actually come in with more respiratory symptoms and not so much fever symptoms. So, of course, we cannot just depend on fever. Uh, I'm okay for people checking temperature. Just now coming in also, Dr. Gopipin also checked my temperature at the gate. Uh, so, I have no fever, that's why I'm here. Um, but I think we cannot just depend on temperature. All right. So, we need to train our guts to ask the question, you got cough? Huh? No one asked me that question. Anyway, uh, Dr. Go is here, so I'm criticizing her in front of everyone. So bad. Okay, let's move on, all right? Uh, this question is to, uh, I guess maybe I'll ask Anisha to give Sashila a break. How does your hospital handle situations when a healthcare worker tests positive? Would you close down the ward and send the whole healthcare team for screening? Okay, okay. Uh, my husband will say close the whole place. <laughs> Okay, Asashi, uh, uh, Anusha. Okay. So when a healthcare worker turns positive, uh, um, you have to now uh, assess this person's movement in the ward. So you need to know, uh, first, that there's also patient concern, there's also healthcare worker concern. So basically, if you're looking at patient concern, you need to see where, which areas this uh, healthcare worker was treating, and then you would have to see whether this healthcare worker has the habit of wearing a mask, is it with a tree climb mask or not. So we can categorize it low risk, high risk. So if 
the healthcare worker was not wearing a mask throughout uh, her work or his work, then uh, obviously the exposure to, and if the healthcare worker was symptomatic, then the exposure to the patients would be there. So at that point of time, these patients, we will have to uh, swab them and we will also have to assess them for symptoms and keep them on a 14-day monitoring. Now, if, if you ask me whether you can lock down the ward, if this healthcare worker has been symptomatic and walking around the whole ward and, uh, you know, helping out, then it's going to be very difficult. You may need to lock down the ward. But if the healthcare worker was only taking care of a cubicle or a specific area, you may opt to lock down that area. And I mean lockdown, there will be no new cases tra uh, transferred in. There will be, these patients will not be transferred out. That's number one. Number two, if they need discharge, let's say your patients improve and they clinically better and they can go home, you can send them home with an NX14. So because they are PUI, but remember we have a category B PUI where the stable ones can go home. Alright, so that's um, important and you also have to arrange for them to be, uh, you know, swapped again later on at the specified time according to the guideline. Now coming to healthcare worker who's positive and transmit and the possible transmission to his or her colleagues. Now, that is very important. So your OSH team has to come down and determine the shift or the timing they work. Those who were in contact with these healthcare workers were the rest wearing PPE, not wearing PPE, because that will then help you to re-stratify them. So those who were, the healthcare workers who were not wearing PPE, say in the pantry or in the prayer area, and they were mingling, they were having meals together, they become high-risk contact. So these, these particular healthcare workers will be swapped. They will have to be, you know, given time off until their swaps written in the uh, according to the guidelines. Now. If just say um, other healthcare workers working in other shifts were not in contact, direct contact with these healthcare workers, then I think you will need to re stratify them. You may end up swabbing them, but you may not have to give them uh, uh, time off if they had no direct contact with the healthcare worker. So it's really dependent on your hospital, the number of staff, and also the amount of exposure and um, whether your, your primary healthcare worker or index healthcare worker who is sick is symptomatic or not symptomatic you have to the guidelines are there but you really have to tailor make it to your situation in your local setting all right thank you and that's a very uh, it's a very complex question there are many layers and i think anusha you covered that very well um i just want to add a point when it comes to about this uh the sari walks in particular uh, i think the emphasis is on very much when we talk about sari walks the first thing we think about is the safety of the staff, the PPEs that you need to wear. People argue whether your PPEs at Sari Ward should be the same like COVID Ward, and, and, and we discussed that a little bit just now. I just want to highlight one other uh, dimension to that discussion. We mustn't also forget safety of the patients in the Sari Ward. We know we have a Sari Ward, knowing the reason why we have a Sari Ward, we know that some of these Sari patients may indeed have COVID. But we also acknowledge many of them may not have COVID. And we certainly do not want them to get COVID by staying in our sari wards. And that could be our relatives and our neighbours. So I think we do also need to, and I think Anusha mentioned that briefly, we also need to look at the patient safety step, uh, point of view. For example, she said the uh, beds should be spaced further apart, clearly uh, designated places, uh, so that there's less patient mingling. There must be also a component of patient education. I know we cannot control every patient's movement in, the, in that ward, but we do need to talk to them 
to explain to them there will be universal masking of course in the Saudi world. We have to tell them don't go and sit in your neighbor's bed or to stay within your bed or whatever in your in your bed space. But one common area they all have to go to, of course, is the toilets. And that's where we, we know there could be a risk. But it's important to let them know uh, what they can do to make that trip to the toilet a bit more safer. I, I'm purposely using bad English, okay? More safer. Uh, and that's what we can do. It's just, just about risk reduction. But I think that's equally important. We have to do that. Right, okay, let's move on to the next question. All right, uh, this is uh, maybe parent, maybe you might want to do it because you know you screen a lot of patients. Uh, they want to know what do the experts on the panel think about mass external aerosol disinfection that is being done now. That means like having a shower before you come to the clinic. Uh, Parang? Okay, um, well, I'm not the ID expert here, but I think the question has already been addressed by our DG. Uh, I think it was yesterday. I think he did mention that the, the evidence is not there for this uh, mass uh, external aerosol disinfection or what we call the tunnel, disinfection tunnels and so on. Because I think probably the, the, it'll cause more uh, uh, damage or, or I mean side effects like a skin irritation, uh, you know, and other effects. And definitely it doesn't, uh, uh, what you call, take care of those who have already been infected of the virus inside their bodies. It's only an external application. So uh, I think the, the answer is quite clear, I think. I, I'm not sure what, what the others uh, maybe you want to comment on that? Ladies? So, um, I, I feel, um, I don't really think it's very useful. Uh, I think more importantly is wiping down the high-touch areas. Again and again, it sounds like a broken tape recorder. But really, if you're going to get an infection, it's going to be from these high-touch areas. Your workstation, patients' bed railings, uh, common articles, lift buttons, example. Are we doing enough for these public and also patient-centered high-touch areas. I don't, I'm not obsessed with mopping the floors either. I think high-touch areas should be the focus for us. Okay, I'm going to stop that one there. I just wanted to retreat because somebody asked that question just now, all right? Uh, but I think we all know that's not effective. I don't think we should waste our time and resources in, to those areas. We need to do things that are more impactful. Right, now I'm going to, uh, the questions tend to be re repetitive, so I, I've skipped some of the questions, but we encourage, uh, we still have a few minutes, we encourage uh, questions of a different perspective, in, especially related to the management of patients in, in this type of uh, health settings. Uh, I just want to move the discussion a little bit away uh, into uh, the healthcare uh, providers that we are having now. And, and uh, I'm looking at the young doctors and nurses who are now serving on the wards at every front, whether it's clinic or whether it's in our wards. And we are bringing them very quickly into the system because the demand has shot up so much. So many of them are very green, very new. Uh, they may not completely understand COVID before they are sucked into the system. Uh, I understand the, the urgency behind that. But uh, I think perhaps maybe uh, Sashila, all right, uh, what can we do uh, to, to improve on that? Because I think I've met doctors who are actually scared to go in, but they are going in because they are asked to go in. Uh, and sometimes we don't have time to really address all their concerns. So every one of these girls who I happened to meet, uh, who was previously a student of mine said, I go to work scared every single day. 
I know older folks might just laugh at that, but for her, that fear is real. It's like, you know, some of us freaking out when we see a cockroach. I have no idea why. Uh, but for her, that fear was real. Uh, is real. Uh, so how do we look into that? Uh, I, I think this is going to be a marathon. It's going to last for some time to come. So how do we, how should we do, deal with this thing? So maybe uh, start with Sashira. Just a quick word. Yeah, I think, I think this is a very important subject to broach because it, initially, you know, we were just waiting to set up things and, and but the psychological effect and adequate training for staff is very, very important because it's going to get bigger. So initially, very few, I mean, the, the niche people who knew about it were trained and then was trained the trainers. So what we've done in, in UMT is we started by training a group of doctors. So it was the respiratory physicians, the ID physicians, were all trained to do nasopharyngeal swaps, PPEs. Simultaneously, we came up, we have a education group which came up with uh, education materials which were put online and ensuring training was done. Then we started training uh, uh, people, uh, you know, based on their... Uh, which tier they were in, whether they were frontline or semi-frontline or not frontline, but eventually every group in the hospital will get trained about COVID. Uh, we also have put up, making uh, sure they get educated, and therefore on the portal, there's a quiz for them to do so that they understand about the disease. And then there's online training on use of PPE and face-to-face -face if needed. And also the psychological support, so a staff can... Uh, so our psychological and psychiatry unit have come up with uh, having uh, meet, uh, uh, talks or meetings with departments. So you have like sessions on, on Zoom or Skype and, and you can talk about your concerns. And even in our online portal, we have the, the, the OSH team with, psych, with the psychology. We have an online assessment platform for patient, uh, for healthcare workers to know what their risk assessment like. And they have an option to ask uh, for uh, you know, uh, whether they want to talk to someone uh, for a support, psychological support. So for the, for the fear is real. I think the important thing is for us to now educate people about the disease. And the fear is because, you know, there's a lot of information out there that there are blogs, papers coming out one by one, and, and all this is hyped by media as well. So I think it's important for us as to have a platform where our healthcare workers can go in and find out whether this information is true, uh, um, you know, and, and, and give clear points of why, uh, why and why not, and whether adequate support is being given. And even we know there are a lot of healthcare workers that were infected, and root cause analysis should be done. Similarly, in our hospital, every time we have such incidents, we make sure root cause analysis is done, and that therefore we are able to explain to the healthcare workers exactly this is what led to it. And, and I think people need to know that because I think fear comes from lack of knowledge. Uh, but once they get into the ball game, they, they would be, uh, they, 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 you might be able to improve it. So I think to make a, a long story short, I think we have to ensure every staff in the hospital, now even junior staff, part of the education system is knowing about COVID, very important about what PPE and how it, you have to protect yourself. And, and it is doable. If you do you protect yourself this way, you're, you're sure not going to get the infection. And also the possibility of you getting the infection from another healthcare worker, not only patients, because a lot of people think it's the patients, but you know now most of the infections that are happening in healthcare workers is not from our COVID patients, mainly in the COVID ward, but from other healthcare workers or from a, 
a non-COVID area. And the other thing is psychological support needs to be set up for everyone involved in this field. Thanks, Sashira. Anusha, any quick yeah. word? Um, I think um, very important to have a buddy system. So some of them are very junior. You have some senior staff around as well. So paying them up, trying to create this buddy system where you go in knowing you have someone watching your back. I think that's very important. It's good for morale as well. It works on the ground. It gives you that emotional support you need. And, and to reinforce all this, like what we did in Ebola last time, a third eye watching over you. So we have our infection control nurses coming in on shifts and they actually watch when um, these uh, junior doctors or this uh, uh, team goes in to manage uh, these patients, especially the high-risk patients. It, it's very important. And, and these can also serve like audits, you know, they can give feedback, we can improve our processes. It's very, very important to have this as well. And uh, I think the other thing that really works is the sit-down debriefing that, um, you know, like example, nursing, uh, when they finish, they can sit down with their ward sister, debrief, they can actually throw out their emotions, get some support, same like that, uh, similar to that we can do for doctors as well. All this can be tackled in the wards and uh, I think added on to what Dr. Shashila said, I, I agree to what she said, I think it would help the morale of our healthcare workers, but educating them and, and also the other thing that we always forget is we get one, one set of doctors and nurses, we train them, we forget that we have to start training the next set and preparing them because this is going to go on, as you said, for some time. So while this group is already in the next set and the next group and the next group has to be, you know, trained so that that will give value time for training and preparing them to go in. Right. Thank you. Uh, Parang, anything to add? Or? Right. Um, yeah, just, just one thing. Uh, I mean, besides the, the junior staff and the new ones, uh, they all need to be trained. But on the other hand, there's also concern for some of the older and senior staff, for those who are having medical problems and uh, certain comorbidities. So I'm also uh, ensuring that they're not involved in the very high-risk activities like in the swabbing or certain triaging, the eye-like areas and so on. So we, we are re- uh, put them in other areas which which are less uh, risk them then that's one thing i'd like to add okay all right thank you now uh it's uh i've gone through questions many of the questions are either repetitive or some of the questions are actually not pertaining to today's topic that's why i've uh, not propped it up for discussion but i'm sure uh, that to go and the team and i will have more forums in in the days ahead. So perhaps to, to wrap things up, uh, maybe our three panelists could have uh, just a few minutes to wrap up your key message if you like. Re remember that people keen, uh, tuning in now, it could be uh, young healthcare workers, uh, people on the front lines to want to know what, what you want to advise them. Uh, maybe you'll start with Sashila first, just a few minutes. <laughs> okay, uh, that was quite fast for me to think up of things, but I think the first thing, I think we need to, it's always know your enemy. So we know our SARS, as of now, it's a, it's a droplet infection. And uh, so um, protect yourself. The first thing you need to do is hand hygiene. Make sure you wear a mask uh, if, and make sure the patient is masked as well. And the minimum you can do is wipe the environment before you, uh, after you see a patient or before you see a patient. And the other thing I, I think is distancing uh, from your colleagues and, um, and also patients, at least a, a one meter distance, try to maintain that. Uh, take a good history and, um, 
and, and I think we need to start basically rationalizing what we do, uh, always have a clear mind, uh, you know, on, on what we are doing. Uh, and I, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think hand hygiene, uh, surface disinfectant, uh, wearing, um, if someone has respiratory symptoms and you're going to do a, a, you know, if you think the patient is going to have some secretions and you wear that shield. And I think these are the two most important things on basic PPE that, that, that you should have on based on the uh, go towards a syndromic approach. So if a patient has respiratory symptoms, you need to do this. If you have uh, this sort of symptoms, you need to do this. If you're doing this sort of procedure, you need to do this. So have that clearly in your mind. And also, uh, you know, patients who the pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic patients, I think more and more data will come out soon, will tell you that uh, these patients are most infectious during the the symptomatic phase or the early symptomatic phase. And most of these patients during the pre-symptomatic phase already have some sort of vague symptoms going on. So you have to be really sharp about it and, and take the adequate precautions. Uh, and I think the minimum, if you do your hand hygiene and you wear your face mask or the patient has a face mask on, I think you're relatively safe. The only time you're going to really get infected is when you're doing all these aerosolizing procedures. So, uh, and you know, uh, just by thinking, I mean, just to deviate a bit and to just give some reassurance, because if it was really, it is a contagious disease, we all know, but if it's to the extent that, uh, you know, uh, sitting in front of a patient with ILI, and if you're not wearing your full uh, N95 mask and your shield, every person in a household would be infected by now. And that is not happening. We see those who really had close contact and hygiene is very important in preventing this disease. So I think we need to just start rationalizing what we do. The basic thing any healthcare worker should do in preventing an infection is onto yourself or to loved one is hand hygiene, wear a mask and make sure your environment is wiped down, maintain a respectable distance between your patient and yourself unless you're examining them. Thanks, Sajila. Thank you. Uh, Anisha? Right. So uh, I will start with use evidence-based medicine to guide you, risk stratify, right, and follow SOPs to the T, right? No shortcuts. And support each other, work as a team, communicate your fears, don't live in fear. And remember, we are as strong as our weakest link. This is that was saying to me many years ago, it still sticks, and I think it's very, very relevant in infection, um, infectious disease, especially now with COVID around. First, I'm amazed. Anusha, you actually listened to me, is it? <laughs> wow, I'm shocked. Paran, Paran, please. Yeah, so, um, I think just a few things. They've already covered on the social, I mean, the hand wash and the other parts. I'd like to talk a bit about the PPE, actually. See? So I think uh, it's quite clear now that you like the best uh, PPE that's available. Um, yeah, but then again, we've got to balance it with the incidences that are happening. You know, the number of infections, uh, as uh, mentioned by Sashila earlier, you know, uh, even wearing the full PP, you know, how many cases are there actually that, you know, happen without this close contact. See? So, and the other one is availability of the PP as well. So, in, on the ground, some of the PP is, uh, you know, running short like N95 and all that. So, I think we are, we are focusing more on the other ones like the mask and so on, which is quite okay right now, the supply with us. Uh, for the last part, actually, I'd like to focus on this social distancing. I find this a bit of an issue, issue even with staff right now. I, I still find it, uh, many of them like to congregate together in the pantry and so on, and I have to keep repeatedly remind them, you know, it's, it's, 
it's uh, three feet away, one meter to two meters away. I, I think I have to remind that. And I also have one of few staff actually, you know, even with masks, they're finding it difficulty, right? So I have to keep reminding them because uh, I think the, the awareness uh, is still need to be kept there that it's not just them getting infected, but it's also passing on infection to others. Many, many people are not quite aware of that. So I hope that this part is uh, really emphasized, especially for staff themselves. Thank you, Parang. Uh, I want to echo you 100%. Uh, I peek into the pantries, I see people there and yeah, guard is down because they take off their mask because they are eating and uh, it's a very social event and we forget. Uh, many, many, many years ago during SARS, our, our policy was to finish your shift, wash up, go home. Don't mingle in the hospital, don't hang around, go home. That's why I, I keep on chasing Anusha home those days. Uh, so uh, I think that one is a very good advice because we, we tend to be more careful in the service area. But once we leave that service area, we, we forget. Uh, unfortunately, the virus doesn't forget that you're still coming. So uh, with that, I must thank all the three panelists and the two speakers for sharing the whole afternoon with us. Uh, just a few words to say. Um, with all the advice and the evidence-based uh, discussion that we've had so far, though, as much evidence as we have now, I think we want to thank, uh, I know we have said it many times, uh, thank especially the very junior officers who are working on the front line. Sometimes you do not feel very much appreciated, but what you are doing is making a heck of a difference. Um, and the old man here, I thank you for serving in my place. I thank you for keeping me and my family safe. Uh, and I want you to remain safe uh, to keep it going. Uh, many people have reminded us this will be a marathon. It's going to last for some time more to come. But I'm sure with all the staff on board, we should be able to handle this uh, in a structured, uh, civilized way, evidence-based, and sharing the workload across the board. And it is not just for the ID or the intensivists or the ED or the primary care people, but it also involves the other uh, healthcare professionals from other disciplines as well. Their support is uh, equally important. So with that, I thank again all the three panelists for spending this afternoon for us. I'm sorry I couldn't serve you uh, lunch, uh, but virtually you've been fed. That's what Dr. Dr. Gopikpin said, so okay. Um, thank you very much and I hope uh, this has been a uh, uh, rewarding and fruitful uh, uh, webinar. So with that, thank you very much. And I know many of you have to go back to work. Uh, I don't have to. So I just want to make you feel a bit a bit more jealous. Right. So with that, thank you very much for NIH for hosting us. Thank you very much and goodbye.